This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is John in Seattle. And when I'm not telling terrible dad jokes to anyone who will listen, I'm Stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you've ever wondered what rich people do with their money, well, hang on, kids, because we're coming to the rescue. Here to discuss one market watch piece that seems to have the answer, we welcome the founder of Rise Up, Tara Falcone. Plus, from this podcast, we've got OG. And from the award-winning site, LenPenzo.com, it's Cleveland Cavalier star, Tristan Thompson. <laughs> I, I got you with that one, though. I just, I'm just kidding. He's got a hot date with Jordan Woods. It's just Len Penzo. Boring. Hey, but that's not all. On today's Friday FinTech segment, we'll talk about the future of FinTech. Where's the ball headed in the world of tools to make finance easier? Well, we'll talk to Ryan Falvey, the co-founder of Incubator Fin Venture Studio, about what fintech has on the horizon. Plus, we'll answer a magnify money call for help and share a round of my amazing trivia. And now, because the weekend won't start itself, it's Joe Saul Seahide. It won't start itself. How can you start your weekend without money talk? Hey, everybody, I am Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and welcome back to Friday. And across the table from me, it's the friend I see nearly every Friday across the table from me, my good buddy OG. And Mondays and Wednesdays. How about and then that? On Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, we talk. So, <laughs> we, we do. And we then have... when we're really bored, we fly across the country to have beers. Yes, beers with anybody who will have beers with us. Mm-hmm. And luckily, today we got a couple people that could have beers with us. Actually, they're on my dad's shortwave. But uh, in Los Angeles, California, hopefully he's got a beer ready. It's my good friend, Len Penzo. I certainly do have a beer ready. And, you know, Joe, has Doug ever had a bad day at all? That guy, he's always just totally up. He is totally, isn't he? It's kind yeah. of annoying. I remember I have a friend, somebody says, talks about him that way. They say he's annoyingly nice. I don't know if anybody's ever called annoyingly nice, but they've called Doug annoying. <laughs> and Not by the way, me. you know, I love Doug. How many people are going to get the Kardashians reference in that open? You think maybe I a third it. of our? <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Len's favorite thing to read is Us Weekly. That's all he does. Actually, I heard about it in People. <laughs> there it is. Of course. And here, the person who's up with all of the Kardashian info from Rise Up. We're so happy Tara Falcone's here. 
Hey guys, how you doing? I'm I'm great. So Us Weekly, is that where you get all your Kardashian references? No, I'm a Cosmo kind of gal. Ah, and uh, well, you'll see some Kardashian stuff there too, I suppose. Kylie's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, hot mess, I think is what they said when I was in the South. So tell everybody about Rise Up. I'm really excited. You finally are on the show. Tell everybody the cool stuff you do there. Thank you. Yes, I'm excited to be here. So Rise Up is a financial services company that's dedicated to financial education and access. We are tackling that financial education prong first, uh, and we have financial literacy programs that are available at colleges around the country, available to individuals, and also we're expanding into the corporate financial wellness space this year too. So our goal is really to empower people to rise up with their money and give them the tools that they need to do so. Besides that, you got nothing going on. Nothing. Yeah. I'm very bored and what do you do on Tuesdays? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you don't spell rise like R I S E. Have you ever thought about maybe having a program that would help you spell better? You know, I did think about that. Uh, my family's German and my maiden name was Rise Big. And so I wanted to kind of name the company something that was a bit of a, a throwback and uh, kind of a an honor of my family and my upbringing. And so that's where the R-E-I-S comes into play. But it is frustrating. I have to spell it all the time right now. So Well, but that's fine because, Tara, this episode of Stacky Benjamins is brought to you by Grammarly. Grammarly is a communication tool. <laughs> that is a great and lead-in. She walked she right into it. Right, communication right tool into it. that it. helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com forward slash SB to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. You know what's funny is that people are going to put in R-E-I-S. Grammarly, Grammarly should tell them that's the most awesome way to spell it. They should. I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, obviously I need to talk to the people you're talking to as you get this this podcast sponsored by them. Absolutely. Thanks also to Skillshare for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Skillshare is offering Stacky Benjamins listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free to sign up. Go to Skillshare.com slash SB. That's Skillshare.com slash SB. Thanks to Skillshare. We got a great show. We got Tara Falcone here. Ryan Falvey is going to talk about the future of fintech. So let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. And in our headline today, this piece comes to us from MarketWatch. It's an opinion piece I thought we would bandy about, as mom says. Here's what smart rich people really do with their nest egg. This is written by Mitch Tuckman. Uh, the piece reads, most people think they're above average in intelligence, relationship status, and professional achievement. Social scientists call this illusory superiority. My business partner, Scott Puritz, has found the one area where even above average people, objectively smart, rich, successful professionals seem to wave the white flag and admit to not understanding money and investing. Quote, one of the most shocking things is the low level financial literacy throughout our culture. Puritz told the Washington Post, it's independent of education Doctors, MBAs, corporate executives are incredibly competent in everything they do, but when it comes to investing, you run into this cauldron of mostly negative emotions, embarrassment, frustration, guilt. It leads to paralysis. It was funny. I was reading this this morning, Tara, and I knew you were going to be on. You got to see this all over the place. Just people woefully incompetent when it comes to investing. Yeah. Smart people, not so smart people, rich people, not so rich people. It doesn't really matter. Uh, investing especially seems to be something that's very intimidating to people. It feels like a foreign language that they've never really learned or been exposed to before. But where do you think we went off the rails? Like, why not? Why Why is a doctor great at prescribing medicine, but horrible with the dollar once they earn it? What do you think? 
Well, I think it's a factor of us not having this in our education system, whether it be while we're in high school or in college, uh, especially if you're becoming a doctor, you're, you know, specializing so, you know, succinctly or focused on that particular subject that you're studying that you kind of have blinders on. You're not really focused on those other things, those life skills that you should really be cultivating uh, in school as well. Len, uh, do you agree with this should be taught in school? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I take that from a personal finance, but uh, big picture stuff about the importance of investing. That alone, I think, is not taught in even in high at the high school level and how you can grow your money over time and the importance of growing your money over time and the importance of starting as soon as possible and the impacts of not starting soon. Even delaying, say, 10 years can make a huge difference. And I think if people were made aware of that in high school, they would put more time and effort into learning about how to invest more wisely. But, but Len, what's funny is another Market Watch piece that just came out is a piece about a friend of ours, uh, Tori Dunlop, who's about to turn 25. She's on pace to have $100,000 saved by the f- time she's 25. None of that piece goes over school. It all talks about her family taught her that. Is, is the real problem the school system or is it family problem? Well, it could be a combination of both, can it? I don't know many families that teach, that talk about that stuff. I know my, I've taught that stuff to my kids at the dinner table, but I don't think a lot of families do. And I'm curious how much of that money was saved, just saved from, you know, out of, out of what she's earned and how much was from investing investment yeah. returns just out of curiosity. Yeah. She actually started saving when she was nine. It's a wow. piece. So very yeah. good. Good for her. Yep. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and obviously, OG oh, only do that at home, but why, you know, it talks in here in this piece that we all suffer from negative emotions, embarrassment, frustration, guilt. Is that why we don't teach our kids more about money? I think it's funny that the only thing that we won't share with strangers is our behavior around money, but we'll talk to the person on the train next to us about the rash that we can't get rid of, you know, or the recent surgery or whatever the case may be. And there's such a weird stigma assigned to it for whatever reason. And and I agree that it should be taught, not necessarily taught, taught in terms of how to do it, but the importance, like Len said, about why to do it. I think it's also really important that it's okay to recognize that there are areas in which you can be really good and there's areas that you can defer to other people. And I know part of the article talks about that, but but there's nothing wrong with having a heart surgeon do your heart surgery instead of like trying to learn it on your own. So why is it so different with, with money and say that, you know, I've got to learn all of this. I think you got to know the basics. You should take aspirin if you have a headache or that sort of stuff. The same thing we learn about uh, medicine, but when it gets to more complicated things, there's nothing wrong with having a specialist. But they say, though, Tara, to OG's point, the fundamentals of finance, this is from the piece, are boring and aggressively so. If you're out there trying to teach people about money, how do you make this more entertaining? Sure. Well, I mean, I try to infuse a lot of my own personal financial transformation into the stories and the lessons that I'm telling, try to make it a lot more relatable than maybe, you know, the standard kind of cartoon piggy bank dancing across the screen that you might see in most videos. Also have interactive workshops and ways that students can ask me their own personal questions. That way it's not just somebody teaching at them, but rather it's conversational. What do you find most of those questions are based on? I mean, what's the most asked question that you get? A lot of them right now, especially with the millennial generation and the Gen Z in college are around credit cards and credit scores, interestingly enough, because, and I think it makes sense, right? Like this generation is 
the most debt laden when it comes to student loans as any other generation in our uh, our history has been. And so that's top of mind for them. It's so funny, Len, to Tara's point, when I when I went and used to talk at high schools, every single question, like Tara's questions, were variations on the form of, how the hell do I get into debt? <laughs> how do I get into debt? Yes. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. easy. Yeah. How do I get a car loan? How do I get a credit card? How does yep. my credit score work? It's all debt-based. Isn't that sad? Yeah. But yeah, but you know what? And I think I've brought this up in previous, recently previous uh, podcasts with you. Until about 1980, debt was really – it really was a four-letter word. People did everything they could to stay out of debt. And around 1980, things changed, and we became a credit-based society. The whole attitudes in the past 30 years have totally changed. So it's just an attitude change, and, and we've really got to go back and start talking more about saving and investing and not going into debt. But it's going to be a process. Oh, gee, Tara makes it fun on a group level through stories. How do you do it on a one-on-one level with people? I think it has to be relatable, like Tara said. And I I always joke that for every financial mistake that you could have done, I've already done twice. First, just to, you know, because I didn't know. And then the second time for additional research to make sure it was as bad as I thought it was the first time. So there's nothing that you've done with your money that I haven't already screwed up on. I think the other part of it is, I think it's important from a financial planner perspective to just be okay with how things are. It is how it is today. And we're not going to make any progress if we spend an hour talking about like all the silly mistakes you made in the past. Once that's out in the open and you own that and you just say, yeah, I, I screwed it up. I've got this credit card debt or I went to a college I shouldn't have. And now I have student loans that are crazy or whatever the case may be, or I bought too big of a house it is what it is. Now let's figure out the strategy moving forward on how to, on how to fix all of this. Or, you know, I'm 35 and I haven't saved a dollar for retirement yet. Now what do we do to move forward? Because again, nobody wants to talk to somebody whose whole goal in life is to beat you on the head about all the decisions, all the bad decisions you made in the past. Let's just focus on what we can do differently starting today. Is that it, Tara? Too much shame out there? Yeah, definitely. And I think there's there's so much negativity and the focus is really negative on what people have done or the mistakes that they've made. And so one of the other things that I try to do is really infuse a sense of goal setting and kind of vision for your future in terms of all of these lessons. That way it's not just, you know, budgeting doesn't feel like something that you have to do, but rather something that you want to do because you can see it as a tool to reach that goal um, that you have, you know, whether it's a year from now, five years from now, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And so really kind of putting the individual back in the driver's seat and making them feel empowered about these tools and systems that are available to them, I've seen has had a significant change just in, in kind of the way that people approach these topics. Almost uh, Len spoken like an engineer right there. Absolutely. Well done, Tara. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Uh, uh, so we talked a lot about what, you know, smart people don't do with their money. They don't get into debt. They don't stay uneducated a little bit about what they do. They talk about it. They get themselves educated. Then the piece though goes into two different ways that people educate themselves. One way it says, uh, says they don't understand money and they delegate the responsibility to a professional. They get a money guy who seems to be capable of investing their saving and just forget about it for a few decades. The second group gets a bit more educated, but it's largely a street education. They open a trading account, plunk down a few thousand bucks, and start hunting for stock tips. Uh, Len, we'll start with you. Which which one of those two is is uh, is going to get rich quicker? 
You know what? I think this is a trick question. I mean, <laughs> it all depends, really. I mean, you anybody can get lucky trading stocks. I think most people don't. I think if you had to pick one of the two, uh, I'd go with the money guy. But, you know, I don't know. I, I tend to say put more faith in yourself, actually, and do as much as you can automated through your work. But rather than either of these other two, which seem... Uh, the money guy's going to cost you, right, for his fees. And, and, you know, I don't know the numbers, but like if a guy's charging you one or two percent, whatever he's charging, I mean, that makes a huge difference in your returns over time. So uh, you, that's stuff you have to kind of make up. I, I don't know. I, I do things myself. But the other thing, OG, that uh, costs you if you do it all yourself and you do the trading yourself you end up not knowing what you don't know. And, and the piece goes on to say that, uh, you know, it becomes a little bit like a roulette wheel. Yeah. And I think that as you kind of read further on, it talks about the Dalbar study, which we, we've talked about in the past around the average investment returns and the average investor returns and how they're so far different than the average market returns. You say, well, the market does 10% a year. Well, what's the average investment do? About eight What's the average investor do? About three. What's what represents that big disparity? It's not the not always, and it's not entirely. Although it certainly could be a portion of Len, what you said. You know what advisors charge. That's a that's a component of the disparity between those numbers. But that doesn't eat up the whole 500 basis point difference or five percentage point difference between the average investment and the average investor return. I think a lot of this. It, it does. The article doesn't really do any justice to this because that's the summation. Like, don't make any emotional you know, mistakes. <laughs> it's like that's the check mark. Oh, okay, great. I just won't do that anymore. How do you know that you're doing it? It's an emotional mistake. You find out later that you did it. It's hardly a thing to just put as a subcategory. I mean, this is really the biggest thing. How many people in aggregate? Nobody that listens to this show, I know, but how many people in aggregate in December on Christmas Eve? put all their money in cash or in January when they started to get their bonuses or their retirement plan matches said, well, it's a little too risky out there right now. I'm going to go and I'm going to wait for things to calm down. That's always a fun thing to hear people say. That's behavioral. They missed out on a 20% return in two months. You must hear that. You must have heard some of that line at work. What the, about timing and like for the last December drop? Yeah, and the, the, all the what is it? Has been is it twenty? Did it go up twenty percent since December? I mean, I know it's been going back up. Is that what it did? Did it go up twenty percent? I guess it I mean, did, didn't it? Finger in the wind. I mean, I'm just kind of, I'm I'm putting a guesstimate out there. No, no, no you're right. I, actually, I'm I mean, I'm right usually out. right. I know yeah, that. No, it, oh, you know, I know that. Yes, yes of course. Yeah, yeah. That's a. <laughs> You know what? You know, we talk about it at work a lot about timing the market. Hey, what are you doing in your 401k? You pulling some money out? You know, you go into, you taking your stocks out and you go into cash or you go into the stable value for now. Things are, we talk about that all the time. And I would say half of us actually do it. It's risky, you know. So look, when I say do this yourself, you got to do research, right? And you've got to be constantly on the market. You got to be reading what's going. There's a lot of work to be done. If you're not going to put that time into look and see what how the markets are doing and where they're reacting and looking at individual stocks, honestly, I think you're better off just throwing in your 401k, rebalancing it every year, uh, making sure you're not out of balance with respect to stocks versus bonds as in relation to your age, and doing it that way, just letting it ride. Otherwise, if you're not going to do the work, you're, you're really 
in there with a bunch of professionals and you are out of your element. You're out of your league. So, we've, we've talked about it on the show many times, Len, about how you've called 10 of the last three downturns. <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing, uncanny how you can do that. Hey, I admit it and I own up to it. I have taken underperforming returns compared to the stock market over the past five years. So I have missed out on a significant amount of gains over that time. But, uh, you know, that's that's how it goes. <laughs> I like this part at the end, Tara. Our frontline people are financial therapists. Like when you when you're out in the field working with people, how much do you feel like a therapist versus a financial professional teaching people about money? It's about 50-50, honestly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of like walking people back from the ledge, right? When they're either thinking about selling all their stocks or moving everything into cash or stable value when the market's tanking at the end of last year as it did. But there's also a lot of, you know, just fear in general because it's something that they don't know and that they don't feel comfortable with. Once you kind of get them to that place psychologically that they feel a lot better and more kind of confident with what they're doing, then putting those systems into place is much, much easier. And they're much more receptive to you teaching them about those systems. Well, and, and OG's point, people make their own portfolio implode because of the fact that they don't have what this guy says the key is, which is, I guess, emotional intelligence about their investments. And I kind of agree with OG. He makes these great points and then has this succinct answer, like become more emotionally intelligent. You'll be good. How do you teach people to more often have the right behavior and not implode their portfolio? Is it all education or is it teaching people how to be, uh, I guess, more numb to the daily? What is it? I actually try to focus on taking the emotion out of money uh, and viewing money as a tool that can accomplish the dreams that you have. And so, you know, when we're talking about retirement specifically, one of the things that I think gets people really confused and frustrated and scared is that they don't actually have a number, an actual unique nest egg number that they've calculated for themselves that they're aiming for. So they don't even know what their finish line is. And then that makes everything that's happening between now and that arbitrary finish line very uncomfortable for them. Whereas if they were to actually calculate the nest egg number that based on their goals, they need to have uh, by the time they're say 65 or 70 or whenever it is that they want to retire. And they're able to track their performance on a yearly or, you know, by yearly basis and compare that to where they should be at that point in their lives. It takes a lot of that fear and frustration out of the equation for them. That's so funny. Oh, gee, how many times on the show has Stephen Covey come back to the show and been like Tara say, begin with the end of mine. That's what rich people do. Yeah. I mean, how do you know how to invest your money, whether you have somebody else handle it for you or you do it yourself? Like Len says, if you don't have any idea where you're, where, where you want to end up. Um, I mean, you know, we give Len a lot of crap about the, you know, missing out on opportunities and stuff like that. But if in his own personal financial assessment and his own financial plan that was built into it, who are we to judge? You know, now, obviously, I wish that I would have taken all of my money and bought Amazon a long time ago, but I didn't, you know, and Len can look back and say, I wish I would have bought the 2X S&P bull fund on right. Christmas Eve, <laughs> you know, right. cashed in all my gold. Well, let me tell you something, OG. For but example, he sleeps good at night. That's, that's, I mean, you know, the woulda, coulda, shoulda, don't be, that is so important not to be, as, as I get older and closer to retirement, I look back on a lot of things I woulda, coulda, shoulda done. For example, the company I work for right now, since uh, 2009, the stock has gone up 18 times, I believe. Yes, 18 times. 
And I was just talking to a buddy about this the other day. It's like, why didn't I put everything in my 401k into my company's stock? Why didn't I go 100%? Because I would have been 700 retired. ulcers by now. No, I wouldn't. Have. I mean, it's been a steady pretty much except for, uh, you know, a couple minor pauses. It has just been up, 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 up. And I didn't, of course, because, well, that's reckless putting 100% of your and, – and, you know, when I look back, it's like, look, this is a Fortune 30 company, okay? And it's just like I, I go, God, you know – I really should have put all my money into that stupid stock, but I didn't. But hey, that's the way it goes. That's Kodak life. was one time too. Yes, that's true. That's yeah. true. But but I'm just saying, you know, I could lose if I wanted to. I could really kill myself over over all the money I've lost sure. instead of putting ten percent of my stock. I, I put instead of putting hundred, I put ten percent. But that's you know, I want you know, you're supposed to be prudent. You're not supposed to put all your eggs in one basket. That's just the way it goes. That's hey, it's a, life is a long game. You're going to make lots of incorrect calls and you're going to make lots of good calls so don't beat yourself up over the bad stuff hey len number number one i was going to say (laughs) number one performer in the last 20 years what company i don't know oh google nope amazon monster energy drink no way way how many times really um 400 and some odd thousand percent return wow Yeah. yeah I guess I don't feel so bad then. Yeah. <laughs> I still think, by the way, Len would have had ulcers every day. Every day. Knowing you, as long as I've known you, dude, you would have had ulcers on top of ulcers on top yeah. of ulcers if you had all your money in that stock. And I have colleagues who did do that. They put all their money in the stock. They, most of them, believe it or not, were close to retirement and they were trying to catch up or get ahead. But they did it for short periods. They didn't They didn't write it the whole way, but they wrote it for a few, you know, a couple years and... Yeah, boy. But that's at the a, time I was like, "Boy, you're an idiot." But you know, yeah. Oh, but well. that's that's still a lesson we don't want listeners to learn. Please, no, no, please no, don't no, do no. that. No, no, no. Don't, don't. Uh, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And hey, guys, before we get to your big takeaway from what smart rich people really do with their nest egg, I got to tell you what really smart people do to get smarter. They keep sharpening the saw, because the one thing that we know from uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People that sharpening the saw and getting good at your trade or things related to what you do is always important. And big thanks to Skillshare, by the way, who's in that business for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators, whatever you're creating with more than 25,000 classes in design, which is classes that I'm taking now to try to get my Instagram game actually working so that we can promote stacking Benjamins. You think this is all about just talking on the mic, don't you? I actually have to be a designer. Now, how about that? Business, podcasting, it's what we do here full time. And so classes in business, financial planning, different aspects of money management and more, you're going to discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, your creativity and your career to take classes, let's say in social media marketing, mobile photography. I talked a lot about that. If you've listened to the shows in January and February about my DSLR class, creative writing, even illustration, my graphic design class, by the way, these people teaching these classes are no joke. They are Teachers affiliated with the Smithsonian. How about that? Gary Vanerchuk teaching classes in business. Simon Sinek teaches a Skillshare class. You've got the best and the brightest teaching you so that you can become the best and the brightest. That's not even in my script here. I should tell Skillshare to add that because that was some seriously 
Good copy right there. <laughs> Whether you're looking to discover new passion, start a side hustle, or gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. So sharpen your saw. Get better at the things that you need to make you great at everything you do. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare. And here's a special offer just for the stackers. Two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare offering Stacky Benjamin's listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. You could take 25,000 classes in two months. Then you pay nothing. You have all 25,000 down. Probably won't learn much that way. Better to do it a class at a time. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com forward slash SB. Again, head to Skillshare.com slash SB so you'll get your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash SB. So let's wrap this up, guys. What do rich people do with their money? Maybe in just a couple sentences. Len? What rich people do, I think they are very prudent. I think they do a little bit of everything. I think they have money men manage. I think they're smart enough, if some of them are smart enough to do it themselves. But let me just real quick, and what I think, I've heard this before. If you have individual stocks, this is what I've always been told. When things are their rosiest, sell a little. When things are at their absolute worst and look terrible, buy. Uh, and I think uh, that's a, a good strategy to have. It's an uncomfortable one, but it's a good one. OG? I really feel like Len should trademark that. I, I think you could be a little bit more succinct. Maybe buy low, sell high is what you could have just said. And <laughs> that brilliant. would have been just, just in line with what the author said of the article. Just don't get emotionally attached. It's fantastic. Um, biggest thing for me is be okay with decision-making in the past. It is what it is. And it's just about decision-making in the future. Tara, you've got the last word. Well, actually, Len, I think it was Warren Buffett really that said that best, which is be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. But uh, I'll leave that to him. But uh, I think the biggest thing and the biggest takeaway for me is that the wealthy people educate themselves to you know the extent that they can, but they also recognize uh, when they need to bring in outside help or outside help or when they need to ask for help from somebody who maybe is a little bit wiser and smarter about these things than they are. Does Buffett still own Dairy Queen? Yes, I, so. I don't. Yeah, I think so. I he doesn't craving, sell anything I, ever. So I'm, I'm craving a a, 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 a Dairy bar? Queen. No, I'm I'm craving a Dairy Queen banana split right now. <laughs> and that's the last word. <laughs> <laughs> and cut. Well, long-time listeners to this show know that at this point, we usually talk to a fintech founder about a cool piece of technology that I get to learn about along with you. That's the fun about having your own podcast is that when you like, when you like new technology, using your podcast to be able to find out exactly how these things work, and then I bring all of you along for the ride. But today, we're going to widen it a little more because Ryan Falvey is the co-founder of Financial Venture Studio, which is an incubator for fintech companies. And you've heard some of the companies associated with them here in the past. But Ryan's a guy who has his finger on the pulse of where fintech's headed, what's been done, what hasn't been done. And if you, like me, are interested in, so how's money management going to get better and easier in the future? I think this interview is for you. So the co-founder 
of Financial Venture Studio, Ryan Falvey, coming down to the basement. Let's say hello. Walking down the stairs from Financial Venture Studio, it's our friend Ryan Falvey. How are you, man? Good. Thanks for having me here. Well, you're a guy with a front row seat, obviously, based on what you do. We'll talk more about Financial Venture Studio in a little bit. But you've got a front row seat to the fintech world. What got you personally involved in fintech? You know, I think I just have a problem with things that that are just broken and and don't work very well. And and it seems for unfair and irrational reasons. And it didn't take long in my interactions with the financial services industry to realize that there was a lot of problems there. So I've always just kind of been interested in in financial services and particularly consumer financial services and, and where there are just inherent unfairnesses and irrational elements and just broken markets. So I actually started out internationally working in emerging markets where you know, a lot of the problems in financial services are pretty obvious. Like there, are, there aren't any banks, for example. So you're like, okay, we need to have a new solution. And like I did that for a while and I got a job here in the U.S. working for a bank here. And I realized that the exact same problems exist in the United States. And that was a real moment of like, wow, there's a huge opportunity here for new entrants to really shake up the market and create some significant businesses. It's funny, Ryan, talking about emerging markets for just a second. We've talked to people about banking in Africa, as an example, Mm -hmm. and how there's all this excitement there now around banking. Is that still an exciting area, emerging markets, when it comes to fintech? Oh, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. We're not as close to it in the studio as some other investors, but you know, the, I think one of the, the differences between so many emerging markets in the United States is is you just have you know blue skies where there there really is you're about you are growing the market very quickly. Whereas you know that happens here, but to a degree, you know, you need to grow within pretty specific niches at first, or you need to you need to be really a lot better than the alternative. But in many markets, you know, where you're starting from scratch, you're seeing entirely new ways of thinking about every element of financial services from lending to payments to um, what a financial product even looks like. So it's exciting, I think, in those markets. And But there still isn't quite as much back and forth as, as I think you'd expect. Where is the excitement now in fintech? Like looking currently, what are you most excited about? Which areas? You know, what's interesting is I think we're seeing now a degree of sophistication on the part of founders where they're going into parts of the market that were, you know, even a couple of years ago, seen as just too difficult, too complex, too uninteresting to really justify a lot of investment or or excitement around them. We're seeing a lot of stuff in real estate, for example. You're seeing a lot of new ideas that kind of touch on healthcare and and financial services or financial services and other products where there's a lot of friction. We're still seeing a lot of new innovation in things like PFM, which you know some people I think would say, okay, well that's that's kind of matured, but I, I don't think that's the case really at all. But a um, lot of our a lot of our yeah. listeners are wondering, as you say, PFM. You and I know PFM, but they have <laughs> I have a bunch of listeners who just went, what the heck's PFM? Right. Personal financial management software. So yeah. your Mint is probably the most well-known. Digit, which is a great company else people save. or Hybrids uh, like personal capital. Yeah. Personal capital has an element of that. Albert is a great example of a PFM app. We just invested in a company in our last class of studio called Telescope, which is about to launch, which is a really cool approach to personal management. What they're trying to do is um, you know, take a page out of like the call, you know, some of these meditation apps or these things that are really just trying to get you to like change your behavior really slowly by just encouraging you day by day with tips. They're bringing that approach to PFM. 
So how do you actually get into a practice of making your financial life better? And so, you know, they'll go and you think about like, you know, if you're really a, a fire devotee, like how could you use that to kind of link your long-term success to your near-term actions? The uh, fintech applied to different sectors. I've noticed there's been lots of, at least here coming through the basement, lots of student loan help stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see that trend continuing less on the investing front, by the way, it seems like lately, I haven't seen as much, you know, straightforward brokerage help stuff. Yeah, I think that some of the straightforward stuff, you're seeing a, a increasing awareness on the part of investors that those markets are just really hard to just go straight at and attack. Um, so you are seeing some more kind of um, trying to navigate you know, between some fields to try to do some of those same things. Student loans is really challenging, in part because you know the federal government has such a huge role there. So I think there's been a lot of efforts to raise awareness amongst consumers of like what their options are. But you know to really have like a real breakthrough, I'd be hoping that maybe yeah, knock on wood, you see some action from the government to like probably enable some more innovation because it's just right now it's. It's, it's mostly been about informing consumers of their options and decisions. I know we, we've talked in some parallel areas to people, people on utilities and saving people money in their utility bills or insurance tech. Any excitement there of those places where you think there's opportunities for more? I think there's opportunities for more kind of in everything. But what, what I really like is when someone just rethinks a product completely. So insurance is a good example. Another company we've, we've worked with called Joust, which just launched about a month ago. It's a product for, for freelancers and solo entrepreneurs. Um, you know, maybe if you're a podcast host and you, know, you have some vol- really volatile income or you, know, you could be a landscaper, for example. And one of the biggest problems that if you're a service provider, maybe you have you know, a couple of employees, is this, it's kind of, there's a lot of informal interactions. So you might have a, a landscaper come over and maybe he, every week he comes and you know, mows your lawn, does some, some weeding. And then one day you say, Hey, can you get rid of those hedges over there? And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. So he spends three hours doing it and comes over to you and says, okay, it's gonna be $500. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't agree to that. And he's like, ah, and he, you know, he kind of gets stiffed. And that's like the bleeding cause of like losses for a lot of really small businesses. And so what this product does, it's a transaction product. So our landscaper friend would download it and use it kind of like a checking account, but it allows them to really quickly spin up an invoice and have you sign it, look at it. So now we've agreed to some formality. Well, A, the likelihood of getting paid is way higher now. But then what he does is he offers a, you know, a version of an insurance product, which allows you, the landscaper, to insure that receivable so that you can say, well, if, if he doesn't pay, I'll still get it. And so you think that's technically an insurance product. I don't think people would necessarily think about it that way. Yeah. But it's a really interesting approach to solving a problem that affects, you know, tons of small businesses and really just kind of makes that whole process a lot, lot smoother for everybody. I love that. The rethinking, kind of flipping it on its head. Yeah. That's where you see the real big ideas in the market, I think. Well, when you talk about really big ideas, to me, though, Ryan, that seems like almost a really small but overlooked idea. Most really big ideas, I think, are small but overlooked ideas. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, and this is like one of the reasons I'm really excited. I like this space. If you think of all the giant financial services companies we have in this country, your Wells Fargo, your Bank of America, the Wells Fargo started serving the America West, which is like a backwater. No one's out there. What's the big deal? Bank of America started as Bank of Italy, serving Italian immigrants in San Francisco who no one really wanted in their bank. And, you know, you look at a lot of the big innovation in the market, 
it often starts looking at you know providing a really specific service at a group of consumers or, or or businesses that are overlooked, seen as too small, seen as kind of not really desirable customers. And there's a lot of those people in this country right now. So I think there's a lot of these ideas. You meet lots of entrepreneurs. You meet lots of people that have ideas that they think are groundbreaking. Maybe there's people listening right now that have mm-hmm. an idea and they're not sure what to do with it. What's the biggest mistake you see new entrepreneurs make? Well, I should just start the saying every entrepreneur makes lots and lots and lots of mistakes. Like you should just feel really comfortable making mistakes. The most deadly mistake though is really not having a product that people love. And that sounds like kind of, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but you know, you are better off having 50 people who really love something than having thousands and thousands of people who kind of like it a little bit. And I think anyone who's ever, you know, been in business, I mean, your show here, you know, you have your hardcore listeners who really pay attention to it and they kind of keep you honest and they're giving you a lot of feedback about it. And you're listening to them to go, okay, where am I going to take this business? We love, by the way, both of those people, just to let you, (laughs) just to let you know. Yeah, exactly. And they're the drivers of the business. And so when you have them, you can really, as a, as an entrepreneur, as a manager, really figure out exactly where you want to drive that business. And you see these opportunities that no one else sees. And I think a lot of, especially in the venture space, you know, founders will go and they'll raise money and they'll look at some of these intermediate steps as goals in themselves. And, you know, they might not realize until a year or two in that people just don't really like the product that much. You can't really come back from that. So I would always tell people to kind of bias towards starting small, really finding something that people enjoy and, and love and give you feedback on and use. And if you have that, everything else, you can make a lot of mistakes if, if you have that happening. You guys are getting ready to work with another class of entrepreneurs. People listening have no idea really how you work when you work with entrepreneurs. In fact, we'll have a link on our show notes page where people can apply if they have an idea. Tell me about what you guys do and about this new class. Yeah. So we have an open application process right now. We look for companies, entrepreneurs kind of across the country, really, if you're doing anything in financial services, if it tangentially touches financial services, like we'd love to hear about it. There's really no stage that's too early for us to to engage with us. What we do is we, we invest money. Uh, we usually invest a relatively small amount of money up front, about $50,000, but we'll go up to about a million dollars of total capital into a company over say, you know, when the company's really growing over the course of like the year or so after that investment, and then we, we really, it's a six month program and we focus on connecting founders and entrepreneurs to the kind of the five key stakeholders we think are really necessary to build a successful financial services company in this country. Potential partners who can help them to scale, whether that's enabling the product or you know, helping to distribute it. Regulators and policymakers who are very important. This is a regulated industry and understanding like how they think about what you're doing and being aware of what you're doing is, is really important. Obviously, the investment community is a key group. But then, you know, guys like yourself, the media, influencers who can really drive a lot of early users and give you feedback and kind of put a product into the consumer psyche. Uh, uh, Shannon Austin, who helps set this up. So one of our partners does a phenomenal job of, of helping founders to really understand how they should talk to the media, which is something that many don't do till quite late in their growth. And then lastly, other founders. You know, going to your question around mistakes, it's incredibly lonely to be it to be a founder or, or you know an entrepreneur, and you, you do feel like you're constantly making mistakes. And so being able to bounce ideas off of somebody and have, you know, say, hey, like I got to hire somebody. How much should I pay them? Or do you have any, like, any, do you have a job description I can use? That's really valuable. And so that's one of the reasons we kind of try to batch up our founders into, into classes and, and work with, you know, six to eight of them at a time. If I had any advice for anybody along my career, 
like path where I screwed up. It's that it, it's not building that peer group of my own and being part of a group, like being too much of a maverick and also thinking that I had to reinvent every part of the wheel, Ryan. I mean, to some degree, you know, people have this thing they love. You don't have to do everything yourself. And that's, I guess, what, you, what you're saying you bring to the table. We try to. We try yeah. to create, you know, a home for founders. And it is not possible to, maybe there's some businesses, but not in financial services to do everything yourself. And so, you know, trying to, you'll know, kind of tie into the rest of that network and that, that market is, is really important. How do people apply? Go to our website, finventurestudio.com forward slash apply dash now. And there's a link on our page there too that, that makes it easy to go. And you know what? If you're walking the dog or on your commute, we've got you covered too. We'll have uh, the link on our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. Ryan, thanks so much for talking about the future of fintech with us. This is It's so exciting. I love seeing all the new stuff around the corner. And I love when I talk to people like you, hearing about these ideas and going, why didn't somebody think of that sooner? Yeah. The good ones are like that. You're like, wow, that's really obvious. Hey, it's been great to be on the show. I really appreciate your help. And, and you know, honestly, I really appreciate the service you're doing and helping promote a lot and, and get the word out about a lot of these companies. I know there's a number of companies we've worked with who have been on the show. And this makes a big difference in these companies getting off the ground. So thank you. Well, and I think we wouldn't do it if they weren't making a big difference in our listeners' lives and adding things that other companies haven't. So thank you. Yeah, happy it. Hey, Steve, uh, mind dialing up some chips theme music for me? Yeah, hold on. That's sweet. Thanks, man. Hey, trivia fans, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and check out our new theme music. No, I'm kidding. That's way too cool for us. It's actually the theme music from the old hit TV show, Chips, which co-starred today's birthday boy, Eric Estrada, and his partner, Larry Wilcox, as Ponch and John, partners on motorcycles working the highways as part of the California Highway Patrol. Well, I'm sure you know the series spawned a made-for-TV movie, duh, and a theatrical film, again, duh, but you may not know that in real life, Highway patrolmen rarely work in pairs. So the subplot... Whoa! Chips had a subplot? One more reason that show is incredible. Anyway, the subplot was that Ponch was on probation and John was helping retrain him to work alone. Here's something else you may not know. How many episodes of this huge money-making series were produced? Not including the TV or film movies, of course. Well, I'll be back with the answer and hopefully some more of this awesome theme music in just a moment. All right. We explained this terribly complicated game to Tara backstage. Tara, you you got the terribly complicated rules down? I do. I have them. Yep. All right. You're playing on behalf of Paula today. OG, what is our score so far this year? Uh, Paula and Len uh, both are tied in the basement with two and... (laughs) Yours truly is uh, about uh, several pedestal steps above them toward the the trophy at five. Wow. So, Tara, you can see that uh, Paula needs some help. Paula, I'm going to try to do you proud. I'm going to try. (laughs) Now, you get to decide if you guess first in the middle or last because uh, Len won more recently than Paula has. So would you like to guess first in the middle or last how many episodes of Chips aired? I'm going to go last. Huh. That's not her first rodeo. Len, how about you? Oh, I'm going second to last. Falls right in line. An ultimate. OG, once again, you uh, are going to set the stage here. How many episodes of Chips 
aired during the lifetime of the series. Fun fact. I thought his name was Era Castrada. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it's not. Um, okay. <laughs> Is that your biggest disappointment today? Yeah. I was this many years old when I found out that. I didn't know it. Today. I mean, it's not from today. All right. Tara's sitting episodes? here wondering, in all fairness, Tara's wondering, what the hell is this show, Chips? <laughs> yeah. What is it about? I'm vaguely familiar, but I've definitely never seen an episode myself. So. Oh, you've no idea what goodness you're missing. Yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. I have absolutely no idea when this thing started. Did Doug say that? I don't think he, he did. He did not say. Um, I'm not sure when it ended either. I'm going to say that it was on air for 15 years. Shows have a way of just like, being on TV a really long time without you really recognize like Simpsons 32 years or something, you know? So, okay. So I'm going to say it was on for 15 years. Uh, so I'm going to say that the number of episodes was 325, 325. Len, it goes to you. I don't think it was on that long. And I love that show. Oh God. I love that show. So let's see. I think it was on probably saga seven years and there's what how many episodes a season there's a 20 ish i'll say 20 ish those are say 20 so 20 times seven i'll say 140 and i'll throw in three more for good luck 143 143 so we've got 325 for og 143 for len what do you think tara Let's see. I was thinking it was probably somewhere in like the seven to 10 year range as well. Although I really have nothing, no reason for that number <laughs> at all. Uh, and I was thinking around 20 or so episodes, maybe 15 to 20 episodes per two. So I think I'm actually going to come in somewhere in between the two of you. I was considering doing just one, uh, the low ball number and the price is right. But I actually think I'm going to come in around, mm, I'm going to say 154. 154. Given Len a very small margin of error. Yes. Thanks, Tara. Really You're appreciate welcome. it. I take it all back what I said earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Tara. At the very least, you're not going to, as we refer to it on the show now, at least you're not going to Chelsea Brennan him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who who just stepped right on. All right. Uh well, we're gonna make you wait for just a second before we tell you the answer. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Stacking Benjamins. I'm a little disappointed in myself because Grammarly is now saying that even though I started off with this great track record, if you've listened to past shows, you may know that I was a Grammarly whiz kid. They send me out as part of my premium subscription. They send me out exactly uh, how I'm doing. And I was better than 99% of the people out there. And it's funny, by the way, uh, somebody wrote me a note telling me that even when I was talking about Grammarly, I was using some poor speech. I need Grammarly for my verbal skills, apparently. But they, but thanks to Grammarly for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Grammarly, if you're wondering what the heck I'm talking about, it's a communication tool that helps people improve their writing so that it's mistake-free, clear, and effective. They encourage everyone, even the best students and top professionals, to use Grammarly to do their best work, and it, they can accomplish even more of their goals. So here's, here's what it is. It's a writing assistant makes you look and sound smarter, or in my case, look smart at all. 
It helps you easily improve yourself in your communication, whether it's at school, at work, and almost anywhere. What happens is, for me, I use the browser extension, and whenever I write an email or I'm writing a proposal, I'll get this red underline, and then I hover over it, and it gives me a suggestion as to how I could phrase that better so that people don't think that, uh, well, that I write as poorly as, as I really do. That's what I use. You can also use your desktop editor. I should use my mobile keyboard checker, should completely use that because spell check on my iPhone, aka autocorrect, usually autocorrects to something that's horrible. And I've threatened to do that for a while, and I still haven't done it yet. Uh, Grammarly is available on multiple browsers, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge, and platforms like iOS, Android, Mac, Windows. Their free product reviews critical spelling and grammar. I use the premium one, though, which looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. So... Whether it's like a business proposal, academic essay, casual blog post, uh, script for a podcast. They didn't have that in there, but that's an important one. Accomplish your goals with help from Grammarly. Stop making email typos on the phone. Close more deals at work this year with the emails. Polish your resume to get that new job. Head to Grammarly.com forward slash SB and you'll get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. Our friend Kelly wrote to us and said, hey, I'm on my phone and it keeps taking me to the app. You actually want to use the bigger screen to sign up. And then once you're signed up, then the phone app works great. But on a device other than your phone, head to Grammarly.com slash SB and you'll get 20% off your Grammarly premium account. Make sure you got the SB on there, Grammarly.com slash SB for the 20% off. OG325, you're the highest two times the highest. I think you're, I think you're, you're way double. I think you're way off. Way base. off. Yeah. Way off OG. Still feel, you're you're feeling off. good about that? No, I didn't feel good about it to begin with. <laughs> so actually my in my psychology, I was trying to overshoot everything and hopefully drag everybody up closer to me. Um th- th- there, because it would eliminate that uh, the one dollar, Joe. I'll take $1 <laughs> answer, which I think I successfully did. So hopefully no one wins. I don't know. <laughs> Terry, you could have gone a dollar. What if everybody's over? I could have gone a dollar, but I didn't, I didn't want to just take the easy route. You know, that's not how I live my life. That's not, you know, that's not my MO. So I wanted to come in somewhere in the middle with a substantial, you know, thoughtfully executed I, I answer. Question. How is, how is between 143 and 325 and you picked 154 the middle? Cause I don't want you to win. So exactly. <laughs> I'm giving myself the largest You're right. Margin. I absolutely take everything back. Good. I said about you, Tara. Yep. Yeah. As, as Doug says, duh. <laughs> right. All right, Doug, uh, give us your answer. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And today's trivia features the theme song from the hit TV series, Chips, because it's co-star Eric Estrada's birthday. Hey, uh, Steve, can you dial up that Chips music again? Awesome, thanks. Okay, so anyway, you might wonder, what does an old TV show have to do with money? There were lots of money fights behind the scenes on the show. Eric Estrada didn't appear on seven episodes because of a contract dispute 
and Larry Wilcox, well, he skipped the last whole season because he didn't like how Estrada was getting all the attention. Hopefully, today's trivia answer will get your attention, though. Here was the question. How many episodes of Chips actually aired? The answer? 139. Have you watched them all? Nah, you know what? You don't need to watch the seven Eric Estrada's not in. I mean, without his gleaming white teeth and amazing hair, what's the point? I mean, really? Oh, now we're so close. Did I miss it by eight? Uh, you missed it by three, right? It was one, 139 was the answer. Is you that had the it, answer? You had it pegged at 140, and then you added three more. You would have still been over, which would have been probably more painful. But <laughs> you did. Oh, my God. You're welcome for the anchoring of 325. You know, that's, that's twice now. That, that is twice I have missed. I have lost because just barely. I just barely overshot. What was the other one I just barely overshot? I can't remember. Uh, barrel jumping? No. <laughs> that one I didn't have a choice. That was that was like a 16, 17, 18 or whatever that was. <laughs> that is the worst question in history, that one. Gosh. Now, you know what? We're talking about stocks, regretting stocks. You don't regret my stock picks, but the, these are the picks that, that I regret. <laughs> these are the ones. He always, he always says to the honeybee later. So next time you have it. Len, you got to say, here's my number, but I'm going to subtract three. Yes, That's exactly. That's probably yep. better. Hey, guys, let's take out the magnifying glass and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to you courtesy of magnifymoney.com. When you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you find those financial products you use every day. Uh, they're nowhere near the best in class. Over 92% of the products available online all ranked at Magnify Money. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money for more. They, uh, It's funny when you look at it, especially at savings account rates. So many people have really low savings account rates now. Magnify Money's looking at tons of them over 2%. So if you're stuck in brick and mortar land, uh, I think FDIC just recently said that the average person is being paid 0.06. So if you're not over 2%, use stackybedjamins.com forward slash magnified money where you'll find most of the winners out there. Speaking of winners, the winner who called into our show, how's that for a transition, is uh, Tim. <laughs> Say hi, Tim. Hey, Joe, OG, and Bumble from lenpenzo.com. I recently read The Power of Zero, and although the chapter on LERPs nearly made me throw up in my mouth, the book did raise a question in my mind regarding how much my wife and I contribute to our different retirement accounts. We are both 34, and right now, nearly 86% of our retirement money sits in traditional IRAs and 401ks. If the premise of the book is correct, which is that tax rates are currently at historic lows and will be going up in the future, then shouldn't we be squirreling away as much money as possible in our Roth 401ks and IRAs? Additionally, what are your thoughts on approaches to trying to minimize provisional income as much as possible? As for anyone learning something, don't worry. It's just me listening. I'm looking forward to that greatest money show on earth t-shirt. I'm a size large. <laughs> I love how everybody always leaves their size at the end of the answer. <laughs> By the way, I'm a large. Love you. That's that's great. Uh, uh, well, let's talk about taxes at first. So, Tara, what do you think? Should you be maximizing Roth IRA land right now? I think if you're in a low income tax bracket versus where you think you'll end up being when you're older, uh, it's a smart move. I also think there's, you know, there's something that 
it wasn't discussed in this and that isn't discussed often, which is that you can actually do both. You can play a kind of game of tax arbitrage where you contribute some of your money in a traditional sense and then some of your money in a Roth sense so that, you know, depending on what's going on in your income situation, when you do retire year by year, you can choose to pull from various funds that can either be taxed as income or that wouldn't be taxed as income in the case of Roth distributions. So, um, you know, for me personally, talking especially to young people uh, in their college years or shortly after their graduation, definitely recommend the Roth. I think that's the smart way to go at this point. But, you know, with anything, the administration can decide on a dime to change the rules on us. So just because they're promising that those contributions won't be taxed anymore in the future doesn't mean that that will actually play out. Len, with your retirement plans, do you pay a lot of attention to tax diversification? I try to, yes. Basically, because what Tara said, it's like, you don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? <laughs> so so it's best to be diversified to handle everything, every possibility. Yes, you want to have a little bit uh, Roth. You want to have your 401k so you get some taxed out of your retirement right up front and you want to tax defer. Yes. OG, oh, what do you think? Should he be shoving as much money as possible into his Roth? Well, I think he should be shoving as much money as possible into savings in general. I think he said he's in his mid thirties perhaps or something like that. The interesting thing about compounding is that the faster that you get the principal in there, the more likely it is to grow at an ever increasing rate for you. So I think the question necessarily isn't where should I put the money, but how do I get more money to put in? I'm with, you know, Len and Tara here. I mean, we're one Congress away from, uh, uh, all of this changing, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about estate planning and they said, ah, the estate tax limits of mil- 11 million right now. Who cares? And I went, yeah, 15 years ago it was 600,000. Yep. Yes, it was. So, you know, I mean, we are a s- snap of a finger away from somebody going, yeah, we're going to change this. The time to be thinking about that isn't on your deathbed. And the same thing is true when it comes to, when it comes to your retirement plan and taxation. I think that we kind of are in a low tax bracket environment right now especially if you're in that 10 or 12% range, then yeah, it kind of makes sense to to have a lot of money in your Roth. If you're still upwards in that 35% bracket, you're a real high income earner. Yeah, it probably makes sense to defer a lot because that's a that's also a big number and you get some benefit for the tax deferral today. So it's not a either or, it's a both. And it's going to be different this year and next year. You know, how much did you take in exemptions this year, deductions this year versus and next year and stuff like that. So I don't think you can set it and forget it here. I think you got to go through it every year. Do, do you, Tara, do you see many people when you're teaching, many people ask this type of question about tax diversification? Not about tax diversification specifically, but a lot of young people are asking about, you know, in the in the way that they phrase this is interesting to me. They always ask, should I put money into my 401k or a Roth IRA? And I think that's one of the common misconceptions is that those two are completely different. To me, they're com- kind of comparing apples and oranges because you can have a regular traditional 401k and a Roth 401k, right? Which is one type of investment vehicle and two different ways of taxing the money you put into it. Then you can have an IRA as well. You can actually have both and you can have a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. So asking, should I put money in a 401k or a Roth IRA is actually not really the way you should be asking that question. The question is, which account is the best vehicle for me to be saving for retirement? And then once you have the answer to that question, should I be allocating money to that as you know a traditional contribution or as a Roth contribution? Yeah, like start off with the goal, like we were talking about earlier, what rich people do, and then which tax treatment is the best one for that goal? 
Yeah, that's how I like to approach it. It's kind of like, you know, where are we trying to go on this road trip and what's the best car to get us there? And then is it an electric vehicle or a gas vehicle? It's kind of the way that I like to break it down to to young people. It makes most sense to them. Well, and then the other question is not just what car gets you there, but are you going to stop at Dairy Queen and get a uh, banana split, <laughs> banana split right. on the way there? Because that's the key question. That was the key part of this whole show. It's an important uh, question. Yeah. I think that's going to do it for tonight. Len, it must be time for your ice cream survey again or something <laughs> on lenpenzo.com. That was one of my favorites when you found out that what Kirkland ice cream was like phenomenal. You know what? I, I, I'll be honest with you. I think it was the Albertsons brand, oh, the, the store brand. It was the store brand yes. that I think was the winner. It's been a while. You know, I got to go back and take a look at that. Maybe I'll repost that. I think the uh, next time I come to L.A., we just got to repost it. it. I, I say we redo it. You know it. what? You know what? Joe, for your listeners, for your listeners, I'm going to repost that article. Yes. Come on by lempenzo.com. It's going to be up there. The, the ice cream taste test challenge. It is fantastic. The, the, well, I won't give away the point, but, but I, well, I think I just did. I think I was so just about to say that. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I guess Bear, you should bury the lead a little bit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> but those people who have listened to the show for a while know Len's memory might not be. That's true. All that great, <laughs> right? Oh, gee, what do you got coming up this week? Oh goodness, what's going on? Well, as as we are uh, presently going to hit end on this recording, I'm going to do one more trip down the uh, down the slopes here in uh, Colorado. This is our spring break, so we're going to do that, and then. Um, I got to be aware of uh, Joe stabbing me in the back as it's uh, Ides of March today. Ides of March day. Yeah. At two, Brute. Sitting, sitting right here, man. So was Brutus when uh, Caesar walked out of the, uh, you know, Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Better watch. Better watch yourself. Tara Falcone, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, what's going on at Rise Up right now? Lots of things are happening. Friday's never dull. Um, at the moment, we have a free trading that we've just created called Three Money Rules of Thumb that you shouldn't blindly follow. So I'm very excited about that and get some feedback on that. Uh, and I'm also kind of right in the midst of planning for this big money tour for April, which is Financial Literacy Month, where I'll be going around to about 10 companies around the country, mostly in New York City, uh, giving a financial wellness workshop to corporate employees. So that'll be a really fun audience to, uh, to share nice tips about student loans, investing, and retirement. That's awesome. And we'll link to Rise Up and then, of course, all of Tara's training programs on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. That's going to do it, everybody. Uh, Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, let's find out what we should have learned today. First, take some advice from Tara Falcone and our roundtable team. Find a strategy and stick to it when creating your investment plan. The biggest threat to your retirement is ruining your own strategy by second-guessing every move. Second, take some advice from Ryan Falvey at Financial Venture Studio and keep your eye on technology to make managing money easier. Not only can you accomplish simple tasks more quickly, but the advance of fintech might just make complex tasks doable. But the big lesson? Don't play this music to Joe's mom. You don't want to get caught up having to dance with all the hell with it. It's just too good. I can't resist. Who wouldn't dance to this? Special thanks to Tara Falcone for coming on to the roundtable. You can find more from Tara at RiseUpLLC.com. Are you a fintech founder? 
Fin Venture Studio is looking for new companies to join their next class. Head to FinVentureStudio.com for details. Len Penzo appears courtesy of LenPenzo.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show. Tara, this is the part of the show that doesn't exist, so you can't talk about it. What happens here stays here. Did you guys see somebody somebody posted, I think it was in our basement Facebook group, that meme with the guy saying, Hey, I got to the meeting late, uh, so I didn't learn all the rules. I didn't learn all the rules of Fight Club, but I gotta say, Flight Club was highly enjoyable. I highly recommend it. You all should go. Like, you know. Yeah. Talking about Fight Club. Cute. Yes. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. Uh, this is like Fight Club. You don't talk about it. Yes. Got it. The, okay. the, this piece is from the mirror. Bride banishes sister from wedding because of because of her speech, but gets no sympathy. Apparently, this originally comes from Reddit. I was just thinking as I read this that every, weddings are so expensive, and yet the number of uh, train wreck and slow motion wedding things I've, I've witnessed are... Um, just just there's a disproportionate number so in this piece the writer says speeches can be one of the highlights of a wedding guests are nicely booze but not sloppy drunk there's often laughter and tears and of course a chill glass of bubbly on occasion however the speeches are memorable for all the wrong reasons just ask this seriously disgruntled bride the bride in question got married last saturday when this was written and her maid of honor her sister gave a long speech which got her booted out of the wedding so how bad was it decide for yourself Taking to Reddit, the bride said during her speech, she brought up her depression and how my husband supported her through it and how, quote, in that moment, I knew he was the one for me, meaning the bride. So cliche. I thought her speech was really selfish. I think it's super inappropriate to bring up a mental illness during a wedding speech. Not only that, but the entire speech was all about her at my wedding. 90% of the guests congratulated her afterwards and talked about how strong she was. 
Nobody was paying attention to me at my own wedding. Sorry if I sound selfish, but in my opinion, there's a time and a place for that sort of thing. So after the guest all greeted her, I asked her to leave, told her she was being disruptive and selfish. She was really upset, but just left without arguing. My parents agree with me, but my husband and all my close friends think I was way too harsh. Let's, uh, let's start off with that. Lenny thinks she's too harsh. Uh, yeah, I, I do think she's too harsh, Joe. I, uh, you're taking this wedding stuff too way too seriously. It's just a wedding, for goodness sakes. You know, it, <laughs> if you're like most people, you'll have another one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know, but you know, I'm a guy, so I look at these wedding things as like it's just another day. You know, it's like if, if, I kind of wanted to just go and get a lope and, and a lope, you know, but it, that didn't happen. So because romantic, such yeah, a romantic. well, that's just how it is. So <laughs> it's like it's be, a, this is gonna be this is gonna be a great <laughs> conversation. I can tell. <laughs> Lens. Yeah, that was my recommendation, but I, I obviously I, I didn't win on that. So that was, you know, that's that's how uh, I don't know. I, I just think weddings are a. I don't. I you know I know women love. They look forward to that big day, but it's just I look at it just like it's just some, another day. I don't think all women. Day. I don't think all women do it. I think there's some men that do too. But but I do imagine Len going cake. We don't need cake. Let's give them, <laughs> let's give them like crackers. <laughs> How, how, you know what? I, you know what? We did our wedding for, and I've written about this on my blog, and I actually compared it to. I can't remember. This was an old post. I think I compared it to the. Uh, remember Chelsea Clinton got married, and it, it was like a multi million dollars. And I and I can't remember the the. I think it was CNN or somebody laid out all the costs for the flowers and the and the catering and the cake and the and then I put my costs next to Chelsea Clinton's costs. And, and, and it was, was absolutely amazing. Oh. I did my whole wedding for like five thousand bucks or something like that or four thousand bucks. It was ridiculously cheap. But it was it was good. You know, at least as long as you have alcohol at the reception, <laughs> you know, it doesn't <laughs> People kind of forget what all the, you know, the cheapness of the other stuff. So Tara, she being, uh, she being petty. I think so. I mean, you know, I wasn't, I was never one of those women who always dreamed of this big day. Uh, we threw a very lovely ceremony, but it turned into a frat party at the end, which is where my husband and I met. But I think what, <laughs> what they're going to remember, the guests of this wedding are not going to remember how maybe sentimental or, or heartfelt her sister's speech was during dinner, but rather the fact that she kicked her own sister out of her right. wedding. You know, that's what they're going to remember from this. So yeah, I think she was totally over the top. Um, what I give my friends or the advice that I give to my friends, which is kind of what uh, Len alluded to is that, you know, the marriage is yours, but the wedding is for everybody else. So, you know, don't be offended if something doesn't go the right way on, on your big day, uh, because it's really a celebration of two families coming together, not just about you that day. Hey, hey, Joe. Yes. I, I have a guest here. Somebody wants to put, put in her. It is. Cents. It is about time. It's about time. About time. We she, had the she, heard me, the she heard me talking. Now I'm in trouble. So hold on. Okay. All right. So All right. Here. Hey, on. Joe. It's about time we got you on the show. <laughs> hey, I just want to say I heard Len saying our wedding was cheap. Our what? wedding was not cheap. We had a sit down meal. We had a hundred people. Trust me, our wedding was not cheap. Well, no, 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 but this is what we were wondering is if your husband like was upset that you serve cake instead of like Ritz crackers. <laughs> Actually, that's a good story about my cake, to be completely honest with you. My cake was dirt cheap. And let me tell you, it was great tasting. See, so, <laughs> so having it cost a bunch of money doesn't mean it's going to be better. Exactly. So how drunk did Len get on your wedding day? 
I don't think Len got drunk. No? No. Well, I think I was more drunk than he was. We we never it's been how many years, OG? And we've we've never we've never gotten Honeybee on the show. And <laughs> well, so hey, you're gonna start talking about my wedding being cheap. I, I have to put my two cents <laughs> just, in. Just, just well, so you know he was saying. We didn't we say weren't it. saying that. <laughs> saying I knew I was gonna get I knew I was gonna get in trouble. <laughs> Sounds like we're in trouble. Well, I mean, he's, he's giving you the impression that our wedding was cheap. Our wedding was not cheap. So I just had to put my two cents yes. in. Well, he was marrying you, which meant it was wonderful. Well, of course, Joe. You know me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Your wedding must have had some drama. I don't think it did have any drama. Not during the wedding. You know, there. I'm sure there were things that happened, like, you know, that that um, went wrong. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, actually what, what actually, we went, had people not show up. We had people we, not we show had people, up. And they, we had people they, not show up. You had to pay for it. And, that's up, drama. and then we had people show up that weren't even on the guest list. I've apologized like, for that. Like 57 times. I thought I was invited. <laughs> you thought you were invited. <laughs> you could have come Joe. We would have let you in. <laughs> Great. That's no, true. We had people no, that RSVP under, that, they under RSVP. And they brought like a whole bunch of guests. So we had like, I think it was like 120 people and we were only supposed to have like a hundred, a hundred. Yeah. So we had to pay for extra food. That sounds like your crazy families right there. I can imagine that. Well, and then, and then too, I think what really stands out for me is the fact that, you know, how, when you, when you're introduced and you come in to the reception area and, you know, the guys are supposed to sit on the groomsmen and the, and the grooms supposed to sit on one side and the, you know, the bride and her bridesmaids are supposed to sit on the other side. Um, they got it all screwed up. So I had to sit to the left of Len, which I'm left-handed. That's like, so not what I wanted to do, but I couldn't change it. <laughs> you know? you could just switch it around. I'm sitting on the guy's side. No, I'm serious. It's just yeah, like, it was, ir- yeah. it was family drama. That was the big thing. Let's bring no let- drama. I'm going to tell you, there was no drama, not, not where anybody could see. Well, let's bring these guys back in. OG drama at your wedding. There's no drama in my wedding. There's no drama in my life. Come on. Why would there be drama at the wedding? We've met your mom. Magical. We've met your mom. We've heard about Steak Brother. Something must have gone down. I've at the been wedding. married a long time. I don't I don't I don't really remember much no. of any of it, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean drama then at a wedding you've been to. Tara, you must have been at a wedding where some uh some stuff went down. Not drama at a wedding. I mean, we had a couple of hiccups in our own, uh, maybe some, you know, parts of speeches that were pulled off of YouTube and just kind of not jokes that you should tell in front of family. But otherwise, the best part was what happened afterwards and the stories that came up after the fact, because we we ended up going to a club on the beach for the rest of the night and the night ended at like 3 a.m. And there were just some really amazing stories that started trickling in at, at brunch the next morning. So, uh, but I can't share any of those here on radio. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's just say there was a lot of sand, uh, <laughs> and yeah, that's that's all I can say. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Len. Yes. Uh, uh, drama at a wedding you've been to? Uh, well, uh, no, I can't. There's. Uh, oh my I- goodness. <laughs> All right. I'll tell mine. I'll tell mine. Then we're going home, which is, which is at my cousin's wedding. It was a very nice wedding, but they didn't have a huge budget. So when we came in, the very last people to come in were the wedding party and the bride and groom. And my new cousin-in-law, she walks in the bride and immediately all of her features change. And she's really upset because 
they had this ice sculptor and they had these beautiful swan and they had these hors d'oeuvres sitting all over. <laughs> and everyone who came to the wedding that was waiting for them thought that those hors d'oeuvres were hors d'oeuvres before dinner. And that was, and that was it. That was, that was totally it. And so everybody ate all the food before the wedding party got there and they had, they had nothing. That was the food. That was the food. Uh, that was it. party. Yeah. And she was, she was horrified. So that's a good one. At that same wedding, my uncle is standing outside the hotel in his tuxedo the whole wedding party's already gone. Everybody's gone. And my wife, Cheryl, walks out because I'm in the wedding party. My wife walks out and here's Uncle Eddie, the father of the groom, standing there by himself. Like, well, you're supposed to be at the rehearsal. He said, I know everybody left without me. He was standing there for like 15 minutes because everybody just took off without him. That whole wedding had fantastic stuff happen like that. I can't talk about the stuff in my wedding, though. Because <laughs> I'm going to be like you guys. I will tell you this. I'll tell you uh, when they asked for the ring at my wedding. So we're up there at the altar. And, you know, when the preacher says you can now put the ring on the bride, whatever he says. Or, it's just so like the that. best man. Right, just however like that. Yeah, that's, that's a so direct quote. However, so the best man, right? He's supposed to, you know, he's supposed to hold the ring, right? So he starts looking in his pockets and he doesn't have the ring. People in the church are there, you know, you can feel the tension. It's like, uh oh, he's like, oops, sorry, <laughs> bleep that out. <laughs> it's, what's the, it's like people, are, there's tension in the room and there's, and, and people can feel it and they're like, oh no, he lost the ring. He lost the ring. So he looks to the groomsman to his, I guess it's his left, and the groomsman, he starts looking in his pockets. No, he doesn't have it. So that groomsman looks to the groomsman to his left, and they go all the way down the line to the last groomsman. The groomsman, the last groomsman, pulls a Cracker Jack box uh. out of his tux and passes it back to the best man. And the best man opens the Cracker Jack box and pulls out the ring and then gives it to me and put on That's the so awesome. That is, and I've got that on video. I should have, you know, I've always wanted to put that on uh, America's Funniest Videos because it was pretty uh, cool, but uh, yeah. I, I never did. I probably should. St- is that show still on? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can make an extra thousand bucks, I yes. think, with that. Yeah. <laughs> New side I hustle. Think, I think Carlton is the host of that show. He is. I don't know his real name. It's like his act, you know. <laughs> Yeah, nobody knows his name. Nobody knows his real name. His name's Carlton from uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and I'm pretty sure he's the host now. And everybody thinks that they pulled a real ring out of that Cracker Jack box. Only, (laughs) only Len and the Honeybee know. Cheap, cheap wedding. (laughs) So I think the takeaways here, OG, biggest takeaway: What do rich people do with their money? Biggest, biggest. Oh no, I I gave you all my salient points already. Uh, biggest takeaway. I'll come back to you. Let's start with Len. Come back to me. I'm All just right. going to say whatever these guys say. <laughs> well, you're going next because Tara gets the last word. So here well, we go. I'm just going to agree with Len. All right. Come up with something good, Len. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, my takeaway from this, really, I don't think there's a right answer. I, I really don't. I, I think, you know, you just got to do your research you got to be wise and prudent. I think like Tara said, you, uh, you what did Tara say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hell getting old. Welcome, welcome. Something really good and I can't remember. <laughs> welcome to recording of the Stacky Benjamin Show.
This is my first time and I'm loving it. This is great. <laughs> That's right. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.